I think people would be amazed to, to know that you did improv. Well, you could mention it sometime. There's actually VHS tapes in my storage area that have evidence of me doing improv. Well, we'll have to see what it takes to get those uh, out of storage and into the play of the week reel. Man, if we're going to go into that bucket, though, there's also like the 1997 Randolph-Macon Hampton City game and 96 Emory and Henry. It's a there are some things that I probably should have thrown out a long time ago that are still in there. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. It's the largest division with the smallest schools, and I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been good for the brand since 1999. Keith, I'd like you to introduce yourself in the style of my choosing. In a range of styles, somebody could suggest a few of those for me. Beavers and Butthead, my favorite. <laughs> Yo, you're really serious about making this 90s podcast thing happen, huh? <laughs> hey, you know, I this is the this is where we grew up, right? I mean, you realize there are players right now that may listen to this podcast who have no idea who Beavis and Butthead are. I hopefully they know who Beavis and Butthead were. I, I'm not entirely sure they know uh, whose line is it anyway. Definitely not the uh, BBC version, but. Uh, uh, this Saturday, across part of the Division Three map, it was nothing but rain, thunderstorms, and either messy games or delayed ones. There, there's a game that isn't even finished, uh, not at the time we're recording this podcast, not at the time it drops on Monday morning. So if you were in Illinois, parts of Iowa and Michigan, Wisconsin, there were certainly challenging conditions to deal with. Uh, a couple of key games took place in that area, and uh, Keith and I will talk about them here at the top of the pod. But also, we'll talk about some teams that picked up their first losses, and not just the ones you saw on the front page of the website on Saturday. Uh, Keith, uh, obviously a couple of prominent ones, teams that were in the top 25 poll. Let's start with Alfred, who uh, I think we'll talk about later where they were in our particular rankings. But uh, in this particular compilation of top 25 votes, they were number 17 and uh, went up to Cortland. And um, they didn't come home with a win. That's uh, the news, obviously. But the interesting part about it is I think if you step back a little bit, is Alfred was, at the beginning of the season, for those of us who looked uh, real closely at that um, spreadsheet that D3Football.com puts together for voters, or if you read Kickoff, you saw that Alfred, which was a Final 8 team, I believe, last season, maybe Final 16, but uh, was they, they went into the deep into the playoffs, played Mount Union, I think, 70 to 45 in that one. They only had eight players back from that team, so... We, I personally didn't expect a whole lot from Alfred, but they'd opened up undefeated. And besides Brockport, uh, they were pretty much the class of the Empire 8. Usually the Empire 8 um, is a lot more bunched together. There may be at this point in the season four or five teams with legitimate title hopes. In this case, Brockport and Alfred had, had sort of run out in front of everyone. And uh, this, this was not even a super notable game for, for Alfred. Um, until it got close in the fourth quarter, and then uh, and then when it went to overtime, uh, there was a heads-up play by Cortland on the goal line that helped them tie the game. And then in overtime, the moment that really stood out to me on Saturday was um, Alfred has the ball in overtime, down by three at that point in the game, throws the ball to the end zone, and both the cornerback and the wide receiver go up for it and appear to both come down with it in real time. Um, and the uh, 
the announcers don't say anything. The official doesn't give any immediate indication of whether it's an interception, which would end the game because Cortland had already taken the lead in their half of the overtime or a touchdown, which would end the game, make it a win for Alfred. So literally this whole entire game and Alfred's undefeated record comes down to this, this pass to the sideline in the end zone in overtime after a short delay. Um, it turns out Cortland has the interception. They pull off the upset. Alfred no longer ranked 17th. And I think for those of us who were holding off on on ranking Alfred or getting to a point where um, they were going, you were going to have to rank Alfred because they're they're winning in a solid conference this deep into the season. Um, that that turned uh, turned some ballots on their heads. But for for those of us who weren't ranking them, um, I guess it's justification, validation. I don't know know how to put it, but it was a certainly exciting finish and uh, and somewhat of a surprise. The uh, the way I found out, the way I figured it out, it, you and I were both watching or was watching the, the, the Cortland broadcast. You know, the broadcasters don't pick up on it right away. The first thing I see, the first indication that finally triggers it in my head is the, the officials making the touchback signal. And I'm like, oh, touchback. Right. So the game's over. Why are we... <laughs> Why is this taking so long for people to realize that the game's over? Sometimes that's just kind of an artifact of uh, teams that don't play in overtime games that much. The uh, the other thing about Alfred uh, Keith is I actually you know knowing what they had back, having you know lost Tyler Johnson, who's basically the uh, the the four year starting quarterback, almost the only guy who started uh, games at quarterback for the Saxons during those four years and led them to that uh, quarterfinals of the of the playoffs this past season. Um, I kind of surprised slash impressed that they got to five and oh I would have thought that um you know if uh that they were going to be in a position where they were going to pick up this loss earlier they uh, squeaked by at Ithaca to open the season uh turned out that said as much about Ithaca maybe as it did about Alfred um close game against Utica uh rolled over Rochester but everybody's done that so far this year uh St. John Fisher won by just seven on the road at St. John Fisher just this past week um, and not, not quite a necessarily a, a living on borrowed time kind of kind of thing going on there, but it just looked like finally this was something that where the law of averages kind of caught up with them. Well, that's very typical of the Empire Eight. It, most of the past few seasons, we just hadn't really seen it yet this season. Uh, typical, I mean, in the sense that te- it doesn't really matter where teams are in the standings. Uh, each team. And I know coaches in every conference say this. Every week is uh, a tough challenge, and every week this team's capable of beating you. Well, it's not really true in every conference, um, but it was for a long time in the Empire Eight, and we really didn't see it uh, see that show itself um, in the case of Alfred. But I think also they they played well in uh, in the second halves of some close games. You mentioned the Ithaca one with three point win. Utica was a, was a seven point win, and St. John Fisher also a seven-point win. So they played well in close games. And really, if that pass comes down uh, in the hands of uh, Saxon's wide receiver instead of a Cortland cornerback, we'd be saying the same thing, that they played well in crunch time. Not out of the woods yet, or I guess not uh, eliminated from the title hunt. That's probably the way I meant to say it. Uh, Alfred can... uh... They kind of get back into it with uh, the game against Brockport. That doesn't come up until week 10. However, that's on November 4th. They host RPI and Morrisville State before they travel to Brockport. But, you know, again, not out of the realm of possibility. They could still come back and make the playoffs this season. The other game that uh, we wanted to focus on, or one of the other games, of course, uh, that uh, probably got a lot of notoriety outside of Division Three circles, too, for uh, one of the key plays in that game was uh, Wabash falling to Ohio Wesleyan by the score of 16-13. Uh, Ohio Wesleyan, first off, 
hadn't beaten Wabash since 1989. Wabash, key plays of the game in which Skylar Nerig's field goal attempt was blocked, and then he picked it up and ran it in for a uh, 24-yard touchdown run, uh, which uh, gave uh, you know, the tied up the score at 13-13. Then he had another field goal blocked at the uh, end of the game that would have sent the game into overtime. But uh, Keith, similarly, I think we've been kind of thinking probably about the same sort of things about Wabash. They uh, didn't necessarily skate by uh, Albion. They did win by nine, but uh, you know they only beat Hiram 25-21 at home. Uh, they only won at Worcester 33-28. And you know people like to say a win is a win is a win and you know not every win is an indicator that you're going to keep winning it uh past performance does not necessarily equal future results and also too i think i tend to give a team one pass every everyone has a bad week everyone has a game that uh, unexpectedly becomes tougher than uh, they thought it would be because they get off to a poor start or there's some turnovers or injuries or whatever um, but when you see it happen in back-to-back weeks, as it did for, for Wabash against Hiram and at Worcester, uh, then then we start to think maybe uh, this team isn't as good as its reputation would suggest. But then they followed it up uh, with a 28-7 very convincing win over Denison, who we thought would be a pretty good North Coast team. So when I was looking through games this week for potential top 25 upsets to pick um, for quick hits, quick hits on Friday— I glazed right over this one because I, I figured um, if if it's going to happen, if Wabash is going to lose, it's going to be in week nine against Wittenberg, week 11 at DePaul. It's not going to be against Ohio Wesleyan. And that game uh, turned into a slugfest or a, I don't know. An, an, it was, certainly wasn't an offensive shootout by any means. Um, turned, turned into that early. Ohio Wesleyan led 10-3 at the half. Uh, Wabash uh, got back in front in that one or tied it up actually in the third quarter. And then uh, it was a late uh, field goal by Ohio Wesley and that, that uh, put the battling bishops ahead in that one. And it, it was one of those ones we were sort of watching the scoreboard as all these other things are going on, because on Saturdays, you know, 90 games or 80 games are going on at the same time. You have a handful of games at night, some on Friday, but um, that was one of those crazy results where you were waiting for something to happen. And, and a lot of times in games like that, it's the the either better team or the more experienced team, the team that's generally used to winning, that makes something happen late in the game. And, and this week, it just wasn't the case. UW Lacrosse was also a team that picked up its first loss uh, this weekend. That was on Friday. We'll talk a little bit about that game a little bit further on in the rundown. But the other game I wanted to talk about here at the top, Keith, was the Framingham State-Plymouth State game. Framingham State picks up its first loss, and, and Plymouth State, who has been very quietly doing quite well this season, uh, continued to do so. They won 16-13 in overtime, going to 6-1, and one, which means they matched their win total of last year. But before that, uh, before this past year, it was a stretch of uh, four years in a row in which they had won one or two games. Yeah, and, and they haven't changed coaching staffs or had any other major changes that are evident from far away. So sometimes, you know, teams just fluctuate down and up because they they recruit a couple of good classes in a row but I, I thought the the more surprising than than Plymouth State pulling the upset um was was Framingham State um losing because they had at this point um by virtue of a of a two touchdown win early in the season at Cortland Cortland on Saturday beats Alfred you start to believe that maybe Framingham State is really a um 
top 25 worthy team or at least a team that would get some votes. And uh, you look at the rest of their schedule, except for um, you know Western Connecticut is traditionally pretty good, and they're five and one this season. Except for that game, you figure they were maybe in in good shape to uh, to to run the table, get a solid playoff seed. Because again, you have a win over an Empire Eight team. Um, you maybe you play a home playoff game, and all and that all uh, goes up in flames uh, because of uh, Plymouth State. Pronunciation one hundred and one. Univistic. Gallardi. Framingham State. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Framingham. Keith, I have never really understood how to pronounce Framingham, but I know that you grew up in the Boston area, so thank you for that. Well, yeah, in Boston, it would be, it would be a lot more A in there. Frame, Framingham. Frame, I can't even do a good Boston. <laughs> no, um, yeah, that's okay. That, that's not part of the job description. That's totally fine. The, uh, like I said, we'll talk about uh, the uh, other games uh, that was relevant here coming up in a little bit. Uh, we also, of course, had a, a matchup of top 10 teams in which number three ranked UW Oshkosh beat number nine Platteville 28-14. I watched, I guess, maybe a, a fairly significant portion of that game, Keith, um, and, you know, Platteville passed up some opportunities. They passed up a... a, a 40-yard field goal attempt in uh, in the first period. They turned the ball over on downs a handful of times, uh, You know, just turned the ball over in general. I think we both saw near the end of the game the, uh, the, the uh, attempted trick play, which turned into an interception, in which I'm still not convinced there was a Platteville receiver out there. Just kind of a interesting sort of way this game went down, and that was one of the games in which there was all sorts of deluge, although at least no lightning or no delays. Yeah, and, and you know sometimes when you watch those on um, on video, you don't because the quality of the video is actually pretty good. You don't really see the the uh, raindrops coming down until there's like a stoppage of play, or if they pan over to the the stands and you see everybody freezing their butts off or they're drenched, then you're like, oh wow, it's really terrible out there. You could sort of tell on that one it was it was overcast. It was a sloppy day, and that probably had something to do with the score being 28-14. But I ended up coming away uh, really impressed with with Platteville in the second, you know, 14-7 at the half. Um, as you mentioned, they passed up some opportunities, didn't um, you know, didn't punch in, um, or we didn't make the most of their opportunities. We'll just say early in the game, still 14-7 at that point. And every time uh, they wanted to close the gap. Oshkosh did a nice job of of staying sort of one step ahead. So even in that game, it goes to 21-7. Platteville closes it to 21-14 late in the third. Oshkosh scores again, but Platteville doesn't go away. And they're driving late in that game. Um, and maybe it wasn't even really a trick play. I know I termed it as such on Twitter, but it was uh, maybe just your traditional reverse where you, you hand it off going in one direction, you pitch it coming back the other direction. And... At that at that point in the play, when the wide receiver catches the pitch, it's fine. It's a it's a fine play call in the red zone. If it's not there, though, you throw it away, you eat it, whatever it is. For whatever reason, the Platteville player threw it anyway because that's how the play was drawn up. But there was no receiver in the area, and it goes directly to an Oshkosh player. Oshkosh intercepts that pass where they have an opportunity to, to close it to a 28-21 game. Uh, Oshkosh intercepts it, basically gets a couple first downs, runs the clock out, and it ends up not being as close a game as it could have been. As far as Platteville, um, it probably would have helped them to close the gap on that game 
uh, a little bit, at least in the in the voters' minds. Doesn't really matter uh, because margin of victory is not playoff criteria. But um, I think they're they're now really sitting on that that George Fox win as their impressive win, and they'll get a chance to to play Whitewater later in the season. They they still have the rest of the WIAC slate, but they weren't as out of this game as the score may have indicated. But they really needed that that uh, they really need to punch that one in when they uh, when they turned it over on that wacky play. I have some thoughts about Platteville coming up in a. a- uh, in a, a little bit, but uh, to talk about Oshkosh for a second, I thought uh, Brett Casper looked great. Dylan Hecker looked fantastic. Sam Mankowski, Dom Totorello really looked good. You know the the offense, the part of the uh, the UW Oshkosh team that we saw not maybe execute so well and so crisply down the stretch against some of the top defenses in Division Three certainly looked good on uh, on Saturday. The the question is is as they were grinding out those last couple of first downs that you mentioned, Keith, uh, you know, Hecker uh, came up uh, came up lame, came out of the game. So uh, that uh, on one of the last plays of the game is going to be uh, I think a lingering question for the Titans at least uh, at least for those of us who are trying to follow them from afar. Well, and the other thing about that too is you mentioned all those names and you you don't have to be a uh, Wyack follower or an Oshkosh fan to know who some of those guys are, even if you just uh, catch the podcast every week or if you just watch the Stag Bowl last year. All those guys were offensive stars last season, and where Oshkosh really uh, took big hits to graduation was on defense. They only had brought brought back A.J. Plewa. Am I saying his name right? Plewa. I'm having a terrible year with pronunciation of names. Um <laughs> He was the only guy they brought back on on defense as a starter. They, they had some other rotational guys that were back. But if there was any question about that team, it was going to be on defense. And I think we've seen through the first six weeks now, only, or, or seven weeks, but five games for uh, for Oshkosh, that uh, defensively they're fine. And offensively, uh, they have the, uh, the, the studs to, to carry them back to the postseason and maybe deep into the postseason if everybody stays healthy. Here's my lingering questions about the Pioneers, uh, Keith. Uh, Jack Eddy was the guy they envisioned starting a quarterback all year. He's finally in the lineup, and he's healthy. So if you're basing things off the George Fox game, which was started by Kate Earl, a freshman, or the Hampton-Sydney game where Earl was knocked out because of injury and Tyler Blang, the backup, finished the game, we might not get a, a great apples-to-apples apples comparison. But, uh, you know, Eddie now finally getting into the getting into the lineup, had some time as a backup and was the guy who was kind of anointed to this position uh, you know, coming into the season, that Platteville's a team that now is in a position where they do rebuild, not rebuild. They re wow load. Thank you at quarterback reload. It's it's a uh, it's 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 not quite midnight in my part of the country. It is midnight in Keith's part of the country. So uh, thank you for finishing that uh, that word for me. Yes, they're in a position where they reload at quarterback and had multiple guys to choose from, but it really makes trying to make uh, comparisons for Platteville across some of their other key games this season kind of problematic. Well, and if you want to look forward instead of backward, Platteville has what would probably be an easy week next week at uh, Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And then they finish uh, with lacrosse right now, 5-1 and one at Whitewater. They're 3-3, three and three, but they are still Whitewater. They've been competitive in all three of their losses. Um, and then Stevens Point is their uh, their week eleven game, and Stevens Point right now is four and two. You can't read too much into the the WIAC records because uh, just about every WIAC team beat up on non conference competition. But it's not a given that Platteville is going to finish this season nine and one. If they do, I think that George Fox win really helps them. I think the Hampton Sydney game will ultimately be uh, a plus in strength of schedule consideration. 
and playing in the WIAC always helps uh, strength of schedule wise. But they really they are not a guarantee to, uh, to to finish with one loss. So if you're a fan of another one loss team from another conference, you want to root against Platteville. If you're a Platteville fan, of course, uh, you want them to, to finish these fat final four games strong. We have a little bit more to go here in the top of the podcast, but I don't want to go any further without recognizing our sponsor again for this week's podcast, FanRays, whom you can find at thefanrays.com. These are the guys who we've been talking about uh, for the past several weeks who will set up your team store if you're a coach. If you're an athletic administrator, you don't have to just be. This is not just about football. Any, uh, you know, this would be valuable for any program, of course. Um, set up your store, and you can have a uh, an unlimited number of items, which will be in your store, and not for a limited amount of time, like you have with some vendors. Where you can say, well, all of you guys have to come to our store and order your gear within the next three weeks, or else we're not going to be able to deliver it to you. That is not what you get at FanRays, and it stays in a spot where anybody can access it at all times. And I think that's, again, that's the the big thing I think that I hear from coaches. I am on, I think like I've said before, I'm on email lists from coaches where I get those emails because that's just, they send it to everybody on their mailing list. So if I wanted to order, you know, Jonesville Valley State preseason gear, I might get an email from Jonesville Valley State head coach, Bob Jones and say and it would say you know you need to order in the next three weeks. So I see all those communications. You see them go out on Twitter and and on Instagram from coaches. And those are things that as a coach, if you were using FanRays, you would not have to do. You wouldn't have to deal with that, and you wouldn't have to ship all that stuff. I appreciate the lengths you went to to create a fictional coach from a fictional school right there, <laughs> Jonesville Valley. I think they're uh, you know who their arch rival is, right? Uh, Jonesville State, right? Well, there's Jonesville Tech. I'm sorry, Jonesville Tech. Tech, my bad. Or I thought A&M, you know, you get them all confused. I would have taken uh, Jonesville A&M. The other thing that, that I think benefits coaches, or a couple other things, one is you can set it up as a fundraiser, so that's, boom, easy fundraising for you. No minimum orders. You know, D3, you're not going to have 10,000 uh, fans necessarily to, to, to sell to, but you, you, you don't have to have a minimum order at all and then they take care of all the shipping so they ship it all direct to the customer and they're also for us by us uh the fanraise.com started by d3 folks so they understand what it's like uh on our level and you can uh, actually go to the fanraise.com of course check out the information you need to know in order to set up your own store for your own program and you can go to d3fb.thefanraise.com and come check out our store, which is uh, now open and uh, ready for business. I expect, of course, to sell out of everything that's in here. That's certainly not the case, but we would really appreciate it if you're interested. And uh, Keith, uh, you know, I don't think we've had new polos in probably six or seven years. Um, so you know, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll try to make sure the uh, the staff gets something to wear to games again. Well, mine still looks like new. I, I keep it fresh. <laughs> I've uh, I've grown out and then back in and then out of mine multiple times. Uh, go to the fan, go to fanraise at thefanraise.com. Tell them we sent you. All right, so just like we uh, interrupted the top of the podcast, the uh, little brass bell game was also interrupted as well. This is a fairly unique situation in that the halftime of that game. Um, and if you don't know, the little brass bell rivalry is between North Central and Wheaton. Sorry, it's between Wheaton and North Central because Wheaton won the playoff game last year. Anyway, halftime in that game is going to be about 48 hours long. Uh, North Central 
Led leads 13-7 at the time that this podcast is being report recorded. And, uh, you know, there's uh, at times I think Wheaton should consider itself fortunate it wasn't further behind because North Central settled for two field goals. And with another five yards here or there, this is a two-score game. But then again, Wheaton also had a touchdown called back because of a penalty and, and then fumbled on the next play. So you're a coach now for one of these two teams. You're, uh, you're going through your film study for a game that still has 30 minutes to go, so think of the whatever the mother of all halftime adjustments for both of these teams is coming up for this game, which will uh, kick back off at uh, 6 p.m. Central Time on Monday night. First half, Wheaton Corners having trouble covering, and uh, with Brock Rudder at quarterback, and, and Brock Rudder, Keith, is a guy we haven't really talked enough about over the course of the past year and a half. Um, he's a guy who ought to be able to take advantage from North Central, but uh, Wheaton has been keeping the pressure up, and he hasn't had time for that. Um, you know, we've had... Games delayed overnight, most notably that uh, Mary Harden-Baylor-Texas Lutheran game in the playoff from uh, a few years ago, but uh, not something over 48 hours. And, and just so people who don't know uh, know why, Wheaton is a, one of those schools that will not participate in athletic contests on Sundays, and that's why this game hasn't been finished already. Well, it certainly made top 25 voting uh, interesting on Sunday because you had a, a team that's Pretty much got to be on everybody's ballot, at least somewhere in the top 10, if not in the top five. You had Wheaton that was a top 10 team and had, had lost two games. And so maybe for a lot of us still in consideration. And we just had to freeze that one, just like we did with W&J a couple weeks ago when they had to finish their game against Teal on Monday. Treat it like it was never played. But, it, but you know, but it will be by next week. So next week's results will, will wrap two, uh, two results into the voting. A couple things that, that are interesting and stand out from the game, of course, it's just hard to keep your momentum over um, a uh, a 48-hour break or any kind of long break like that. Forget the 48 hours, just the lightning delay where, where you go back in the locker room for a couple hours. Waiting as a player, waiting is really the worst time, and it's one of the worst. Um, it's just... You know, because you have all this build up to the week, especially in football, because the, the, it really is the entire week leading up to the game. And then you start the game and then to stop it and then to start it again and then to actually have to stop it and come back and play Monday. Uh, luckily for North Central, it's only about an eight mile drive from campus over to Wheaton. So the travel is not really an issue, but it's just getting everything on again, getting geared back up and then they'll just blow the whistle and it'll be 13 to seven and you play 30 minutes of that. Uh, it's really, it's really weird and it is really tough. And and you mentioned that 2014 playoff game where, uh, where Mary Harden Baylor and Texas Lutheran had to come back the next day and finish a game that was also uh, delayed in the second quarter because of lightning. And that ended up being not that uh, pretty of a second half for Mary Harden Baylor. They held on and won that one 27, 20 uh, this one, 13, seven game. So whichever team is able to, to gear itself up again. And you mentioned that that wasn't really Wheaton's best half of the season. So uh, maybe, maybe they can pull off a bit of an upset here in uh, in the second half of the rivalry game. It'll certainly be one that will be remembered in the, uh, in the little brass bell annals. And of course, one off the field story from this past week, we're going to dispense with here early on uh, Occidental. You know, if I were uh, a, one of the teams currently playing them in non-conference, I wouldn't be lining up to renew. Occidental uh, dropped its homecoming game. They were scheduled to play Laverne on Saturday. They dropped their own homecoming game for lack of players um, earlier in the season. Of course, they lost to Puget. Uh, they lost to Puget Sound 
Um, Puget Sound has played them the last two years, so that contract could well be up if I'm Puget Sound. I'm not sure I'm interested in renewing. You know, teams out there on the West Coast only play nine games generally anyway. You don't want to be in a position where you lose one of those and end up with eight. Um, Pacific is the other non-conference game. Of course, that was the one that was canceled. Uh, Pacific and Oxy have been scheduled three years in a row, so there's at least a year to go there. Um, unless I guess Pacific could say that Occidental violated the contract by not showing up for uh, their game, and maybe they tear up the end of that. But uh, basically, this has uh, not just the uh, ramifications that we're talking about and have been talked about on the field and in the future in terms of recruiting and that sort of thing, but uh, I'd be very hesitant to play Occidental if I'm not sure they're going to show up. Well, I think you bring up a good point, Pat. If this happens in... New England or somewhere in the Midwest or in the Mid-Atlantic, there are plenty of other options for games. In, on the West Coast, you have the the eight Skyac teams in Southern California. You have the Northwest Conference teams, mostly in Oregon, actually all in Oregon and Wisconsin. and Washington. Why did I say Wisconsin? I don't know, but go on. There's schools in Wisconsin, I think. I mean, in, in the head, I drew I drew the shape of, of, of Washington, trust me. All right, um... So, yeah, they don't have a whole lot of other options if they want D3 games. So this may give Occidental a little bit more leeway than a team some elsewhere in D3 would have. But I think they have to show a, some good faith and they have to show some progress pretty quickly at the either in the offseason or early next season. Or really, these final four games the rest of the season, first of all, you know, you, you finish out the season for the sake of your own program, the players who are currently in it. You have to finish out the season um, so you can recruit the next wave of players and keep the program from failing. Um, if you read Adam Turr's Sunday column, Snap Judgments, you hear a lot from from Coach Rob Cushman, who uh, who uh, is a Puget Sound guy by uh, by way of Minnesota Morris and took the Occidental job thinking it would be a, a rebuild similar maybe to to Minnesota Morris, uh, and then and then it turned out to be a lot tougher of a job. Um, than than any of us thought, but he also doesn't sound like a guy who's ready to give up. And so you you gotta preserve um, the program for the guys who are currently there for the to to be able to convincingly go out and recruit, and then to be able to have a full schedule of games next year, including non-conference games. So really, they're playing for a lot more than just um, than just wins and losses on, on these last few Saturdays of the season. Assuming that they're able to field a team on these last few Saturdays of the season. Yeah, and, and the big insight from Adam's column, not to steal his thunder, one of the reasons uh, they they um, chose not to play the Laverne game is uh, they were down to 35 guys, but only one was a healthy defensive lineman, and they didn't think it was a good idea to try to throw guys in at new positions on short notice, which um, you, you know you may or may, may not agree with, um, but at least they have some some rationale. Time for Game Balls, Keith, and I'm giving my game ball to Alec Cobb of Hampton, Sydney. Now, you and I both know what the Hampton, Sydney offense is capable of when it's clicking, and that's certainly what it was doing on Saturday as Cobb completed 25 of 28 passes for 304 yards and four touchdowns, and he did all of that by halftime in a 58-28 win versus Apprentice. If Cobb is feeling generous, I'd be perfectly fine with him voting a half share to his backup, Clay Vick, because what that guy did was go 11 for 14 himself for 99 yards and a score in the second half in a, in a game where Hampton Sydney's trying to run out the clock. 
I will allow Hampton Sydney game balls in week seven. Uh, this is not <laughs> permissible in week 11. I just want that to be clear. Well, now, well, Keith, uh, I think you know people who are capable of keeping uh, Hampton Sydney from getting game balls in week 11, and you should talk to them rather than me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I have a game ball this week, and I'm going to give it to Mount Union quarterback D'Angelo Fulford. In a half of work against Capital, the sophomore from Miramar, Florida, threw six touchdown passes and engineered eight touchdown drives, all but one, five plays or shorter. The eighth took a full seven plays. Uh, Fulford was 13 of 17 for 263 yards and now has 23 touchdown passes and no interceptions in six games this season, completing 72.5% of his passes. And as a sophomore, you figure he only stands to get better and has two and a half more seasons of this ahead. Two and a half more seasons of playing two and a half quarters per game for the first uh, 12 weeks. For my team on the rise, Keith, uh, this is a week in which I, I didn't need to really change my poll. Uh, I wasn't voting for Alfred, wasn't voting for Wabash. I already had UW-Whitewater in front of lacrosse, so there wasn't any of the flip over there. I wasn't planning on over-adjusting Platteville after the loss to Oshkosh. It fell more or less in line with the poll. Uh, I didn't change any of the teams. Oshkosh couldn't go any higher than they already were on my ballot, for me anyway. So for me, the big move... Yeah, huge move, bumping Wittenberg up one, from one spot in the 20s to, the, to another spot, and, and that's basically more about them passing lacrosse than anything else. Well, it's time for my annual Don't Forget the NESCAC lecture. It's actually not much of one, but I try to give their team's top 25 consideration, even though there's no non-conference crossover or playoff play. With NESCAC games starting one week earlier this season and, the, and each team having one more game than it usually does, now with full nine-game schedules, Trinity at 5-0 and seems more in line with the rest of D3. Oshkosh is also 5-0 and right now, for example. There are a handful of unbeaten teams such as Trine, Lake Forest, and DePaul without a really impressive win yet. And while the Bantams' three best opponents might lay ahead, wins over 4-1 and Williams and 3-2 and Tufts help them sneak on to my ballot this week. Well, Keith, we might not talk about Williams anywhere else in this podcast. Just for a second, what a, a fantastic first five-ninths of the season they've had. Uh, Bobby Mamera, the freshman quarterback, uh, did that, uh, had that fantastic play to uh, end the game through the touchdown on the final play of the game. Uh, you guys see it as one of the uh, candidates for play of the week. Um, just a, a fantastic turnaround for the Eves. Absolutely. I think we've, we've mentioned them maybe every single podcast. And when you, when you do get to watch that play of the week, you may see the, the first angle and go, eh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Then when you see the throw from the quarterback angle, from the end zone view, and you see how there, there was a Middlebury linebacker, it looked like, who, uh, who had a beat on that ball and dove for it, and it just goes through his hands. Just like we talked about in the Cortland-Alfred game, one play can change the, the outcome of a game. That one uh, goes through a linebacker's hands, ends up uh, as a Williams game-winning touchdown. They win that game 27-26. So I dropped UW lacrosse a spot. I, I think I mentioned that a, a couple minutes ago. I might be the only one voting for them now. I'm not sure. If Tarek Yegi, the starting quarterback for the Eagles, uh, who didn't play the final two-plus quarters on Friday night against Whitewater, if that guy misses more time, uh, they're not a top-25 team in, in any estimation. Not much else to report on my ballot, though. I think I mentioned the Alfred Wabash thing, and I'm not sure you were voting for them either. No, and like you mentioned uh, above, uh, there wasn't a, a whole lot I could do with my ballot either. The only two teams I was voting for that 
that lost were uh, UW Platteville, which lost to number three Oshkosh, and Framingham State. So uh, the only teams on my ballot that didn't win by 20 or more, it was mostly a week of top 25 slaughters, were UW Stout and UW Whitewater, part of a confusing everyone's beaten someone and lost to someone in this group rectangle, along with St. Thomas and Concordia Moorhead. The, uh, hold on, hold on a second. Um, we have to try to uh, trademark the confusing everyone's beaten someone and lost to someone in this group rectangle. Well, you know, usually we call it a some kind of triangle, but there are four teams, um, and they've all beaten each other or a loss to someone. But like I said, St. Thomas, Concordia, Moorhead, Stout, Whitewater. We'll call it the uh, the E B S ampersand L S rectangle. No, it doesn't help any. All right, never mind. Ultimately. I have St. Thomas ranked the highest of the group, and I'm losing faith in, in UW Stout, which lost at Platteville and Whitewater before bouncing back with a five-point win against River Falls this week. So that team is my slider, but their win against St. Thomas remains the stick in the spokes of making all these other results make perfect sense. That's not from the 90s. Now I'm sent back to the 70s. Um, Keith, there was a lot of stuff that came up that happened off the field this week. Uh, we touched on the Occidental stuff earlier in this podcast, but there was another team that didn't play this week, and that they were in the news a lot as well. If you don't know what happened at Albright last week, you should read up on it in uh, Adam Turr's midweek column. But let's briefly recap. It didn't even rate a mention on last week's podcast, and the Lions were off this week. So after the 41-6 loss to Delaware Valley, Albright removed the backup quarterback, Jai Durant, from the team. He'd thrown eight passes all season, and I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing his name right. He was not an important player, and Albright made it known he was not important, period. Durant kneeled during the national anthem after the team's 24-man leadership council had brokered a compromise in which he would kneel during the coin toss and stand for the anthem. There are a not insignificant number of black players on Albright's roster and two coaches on staff, so one wouldn't suggest that the treatment of blacks by the American justice system is an issue that doesn't affect members of the Albright football program. One also wouldn't suggest that all people of the same skin color feel the same way about any given issue. Somehow, Albright tried to manage the situation so that the whole team would make the same statement, and when it did not go that way, they seemed to mismanage the situation. Removing the player from the team is within a coaching staff or an institution's right, and there's often more to a story behind closed doors than is known publicly. Here's the problem, though. Albright went public with a school statement attempting to explain why it kicked one of its own to the curb. Later in the week, caught in its own logic, it kicked two more players off the team for not participating in the way the team agreed to participate during the coin toss. From where we sit, it's no longer solely about feelings about the kneeling or the anthem or any of that. Albright could have left it be, and pregame theatrics would have been forgotten sometime during or after the game. But instead, it made itself into a national storyline, and I believe harmed its football brand. How can any self-respecting student-athlete commit to that program now? What Albright did was confuse coerce conformity for team unity, and there is a difference. When you demand something of members of your team and enforce it with punishment, that's not a team-wide decision. Those are demands. And football teams have lots of rules and players learn to play by them. That's not unusual by itself. But then you can't, on the other side, say you respect differing views or your players' rights to express them, which the school did in its statement. That's painting a dictatorship as democracy, and I think future recruits will see through that. I personally wouldn't go anywhere that was asking me to set aside my deeply held beliefs if I had choices to go to a place that instead embrace me and embrace them. Put yourself in those shoes. What if your team's leadership council agreed to take part in a religious ritual before a game, one you didn't believe in? Do you do it just to keep the peace? Maybe. Or maybe you feel strongly enough not to and don't want to be forced to. 
Again, we're talking about deeply held beliefs here. Football players are smarter than they sometimes let on, especially at this level. When you're told a football team is a family, it's in the way that you might have a crazy uncle who says off-color things or makes questionable life choices. You don't love everything he stands for, but you love him anyway. That's how football teams are. No group of 80 to 100 men think alike on every issue, nor should they. Teams have cliques, they have disputes, they feature people who disagree and often dislike each other. The successful teams figure out how to let everyone be who they are, but put it aside for 60 minutes a week and work toward a common goal. That's unity. And that's how it's going to be in life, in the professional world. Unity is not forcing everybody onto the same page, agreeing to be a bunch of blocking and tackling robots who whitewash all their interests outside of the game. It's learning to embrace those interests, those differences, those beliefs, and work together to succeed. Keith, it's just nice to have a reasoned, well-thought-out editorial comment rather than a rant. I appreciate that. Thanks. Keith, for my hidden highlight, I've been trying to picture this Augustana Milliken game. Uh, this game went on so long that it outlasted the time frame set aside for it by Augie's streaming internet service. So for now, it's truly hidden. You can't watch the end even if you wanted to. Uh, I, I guess they had to get it off the air to throw to America's Funniest Home Videos. All told, this game took more than six hours because of weather delays, and it, and it ended with two field goal attempts. One by Milliken was good from 27 yards out with 66 seconds left. Uh, the other by Augustana, wide right from 40 yards with two seconds left. Game one by Milliken with a, a comeback in the fourth quarter. This game delayed by more than two and a half hours just in that fourth quarter alone. So I'd love to know how much water there was on the field, for example, when Ben Spellman booted through his first career field goal as the game winner for the Big Blue. Well, my head and highlight involves field goals as well. Heidelberg and Otterbein combined for 1,174 yards of offense in a shootout that went to overtime. On a Saturday in which special teams plays made it to ESPN, there was one that was and wasn't for the Cardinals that makes this game hidden highlight worthy. Freshman place kicker David Boyle made a 49-yard field goal to tie the game at 45 and send it to overtime, which went horribly wrong for Otterbein. On fourth and 31 from the 36, Otterbein elects not to try Boyle again, this time from 53, comes away with no points, and Heidelberg wins on a 34-yard field goal in its half of overtime. It wasn't the best overtime game of the day or the best field goal attempt of the day, but it is my hidden highlight. It's always great football when Otterberg and Heidelbein get together. Keith, I did a double take on the Chapman Redlands game. Uh, all of these Redlands 10 p.m. starts get uh, at least a little of my attention, as I have to tell the couple of people voting for Redlands in the top 25 poll to be mindful of the fact that that game ends too late to be included in my weekly score report, and they should actually go look up the score themselves. So when that time came on this particular Saturday, Redlands was down 28-6 at the half at Chapman. Uh, it only got slightly better for the Bulldogs, but it never got closer than 12 points as Chapman cruised to a, a pretty surprising 45-20. to win. Well, now you don't have to worry about updating that part of the voting report anymore. My double take, uh, the College of New Jersey 20, Rowan 14. Hmm. It was the first win of the season for the Lions against a team that likely started this year with plausible playoff aspirations, which alone was stunning enough. But when you look closely at how it happened, it really was the result of an awful start by the profs who then have an offense that isn't really built to overcome big deficits. Within the first few minutes of the game, Rowan gave up a 79-yard touchdown pass. Okay, that happens. Then 
It fumbles the kickoff, setting TCNJ up at the 13-yard line. Two plays. The Lions are up 14-0. Profs get a 43-yard kick return, only to kneecap themselves with another penalty and a false start on the first play from scrimmage. Then they overcome that to get in a field goal range, and Tyler Knighton misses wide right from 38, I believe. TCNJ then embarks on a 13-play touchdown drive, and two plays into the second quarter is leading 20-0. Rowan eventually shows up, blocking a field goal attempt, scoring a touchdown before the half. But by that point, TCNJ had its confidence, and they played well enough defensively to hold on to that lead and produce this week's double take. Honorable mention goes to Brevard for a 41-17 win over Methodist and... Lebanon Valley, 31, Stevenson, 24. Keith, I was looking through past TCNJ Rowan games. I was surprised to remind myself that TCNJ beat Rowan as recently as 2015, as bad as uh, College of New Jersey's been over the last few years and as decent as Rowan has been. I was surprised that uh, TCNJ had won one that recently. The uh, last game you mentioned, too, the Lebanon Valley over Stevenson, that was a game I did a double take on as well, and I, I drop it in here as my stat of the week. Um, this involves a team which blocked a punt, won the takeaway battle 7-2, but only won the game by seven points. It, it turned out Lebanon Valley needed every one of those seven Stevenson turnovers because the last one came with a buck 11 to go on a diving interception at the Lebval three-yard line. Well, my stat of the week is a simple one. Week seven was not nearly as competitive as week six or five, four, three, two, or one. 19 top 25 teams won. Three lost, one is in the midst of a suspended game, as you've mentioned, and two did not play. The 19 that won, they did so by an average of 35.9 points each, making this one heck of a week of blowouts. Yeah, a, a week in which if if we didn't have a Oshkosh-Platteville game to put on the front page, I wouldn't have had a second top 25 uh, story to throw to on Saturday. Keith, tell me how badly I did on quick hits this week. Charlie, come on out and get you whooping. Oh, well... It was a lot of quick misses this week. Quick Hits, of course, is the Friday column when we uh, advise readers what to look for over the weekend, make our picks. I'll start it off with myself. I picked DePaul to get a reality check, but it beat Denison 26-17 to improve to 6-0. That was bad, but at least it wasn't Frank Rossi's pick of Plymouth State, which not only didn't get a reality check, but upset Framingham State in overtime. Frank and I also whiffed on our, the, our choices of Kenyon to get its first win. The Lords scored like mad, but it was Hiram that got its second win, 62-56. Also, I'm going to rule the question which team is probably the safe, safe to focus more on next week. A miss on you, Pat, since panelists chose Mount Union, a 72-14 winner, Frostburg State, a 59-7 winner, Linfield, a 49-14 winner, Wittenberg, a 49-15 winner, and Wesley, a 29-9 winner. The question was too easy. The whiff. Harsh. I get that nobody liked that question. I am definitely open for suggestions at any point because uh, at one time I'm literally losing sleep coming up with four new awesome questions each week. Uh, I can try to help you out there. I mean, I know you've done that before. Ryan Tips has done it before. That's a totally thankless job. I get that. That's the end? Uh, there are more quick misses. Sadly, uh, that's not the end. Uh, Adam? Our sinus did not lose its second straight this week because it did not have a game. Uh, not our finest work here, but hey, who hasn't done that? Literally, only Ryan Tips and Frank are the uh, only panelists who haven't done that yet this season. <laughs> We've had a guest do that, too. Pat, you were also wrong about Williams getting a reality check against Middlebury, but it took a 20-point fourth quarter and a play of the week candidate as time ran out past to score the 27-26 win, so can't knock you too hard here. 
All right. Well, let's see. Uh, Keith, you were wrong about Guilford. You were wrong about Barry losing to Hendricks. So I believe I was wrong about that, too. At least you picked Oshkosh Platteville and not, you know, say some random East Region game is the game of the week. Well, was it random? I mean, it was just not game of the week worthy. I don't know. To each his own. There's no hard and fast rules to how you pick your game of the week. We had so many misses this week. There are hardly any time left in the podcast for quick hits, but some people did get some things right. Uh, Ryan and Adam picked, uh, they predicted that Alfred lost, uh, 17th ranked Saxons. Um, Turr, Adam Turr, he uh, cased the pick in his comments, though, so kind of knocks a half a point off. Uh, he, he said it would be one of those weeks where you like to pick no top 25 upsets. So he, he, he didn't go all the way out yeah, on the limb. True. Our guest this week, Dave McHugh, along with uh, Ryan and Adam, correctly forecasted Hamilton getting its first win. And Pat, you did the same with uh, Finlandia. Ryan and Dave called Wisconsin lacrosse first loss, but it was against Whitewater. So don't break a wrist patting yourselves on the back, guys. Uh, Pat, you get credit for correctly calling the Carnegie Mellon win against Geneva, but mostly I'm just acknowledging it so we can say the phrase waterlogged swatches of fabric because I believe that's what you call the tartans. Waterlogged swatches of fabric. Yeah, the question was uh, name a, uh, a less imposing mascot whose team is going to win the game, and I picked the tartans over the golden wave, and that was the image that came to mind. Waterlogged swatches of fabric. I mean, how intimidating is a golden wave, though? It's... So it was pretty. It was pretty either or. I mean, that's true, but you're you're gonna drown in that, and you know you could probably still breathe through the uh, swatch of tartan. So I'm not too worried about that. Now that's a good question. See, more like that. Uh, okay, one uh, one cheesy question per week coming up. Let's uh, speaking of uh, this is not a cheesy question. This is a question coming to us from Twitter. And a reminder: we take uh, one Twitter question each week on this podcast. Uh, we send out a reminder at about eight o'clock. In the evening on Sunday evening, and uh, we picked the best slash most interesting slash not super basic reply. And uh, what we went with is uh, by Kurt Poole. I think we've had him before at WC Poole. Do you think your tendency to really favor Mount Union over Mary Harden Baylor is due to their history or truly feeling they're better? Just seems a little out of bal. I guess that means a little out of balance. Keith, um, I thought this was great because I actually don't think we agree with the premise of the question so much. Yeah, usually we say, oh, great question to compliment our uh, our folks who follow us on Twitter. This one, though, I think is based on a flawed premise. If I'm hearing it quickly, correctly, it is not a great question, but we can still address it. Of the 25 top 25 voters, 21 have Mary Harden-Baylor ranked number one. So I'd argue we, as in D3Football.com, pretty clearly favor uh, UMHB over Mount Union at this point. To be honest, it probably should be a little bit closer in terms of split of top 25 votes. Although the crew's two wins over top 10 programs is a huge help in, in their favor. They're not just coasting off reputation or the championship that they won last season. But right now, I think you put UW Oshkosh in that group with Mary Harden, Baylor, and Mount Union as three teams that looked look fairly destined to return to the semifinals should the brackets break right. And then the fourth team is up in the air, be it North Central, St. Thomas, or someone slightly more unexpected. Based on what we see to date, I'm not sure you can favor UMHB over Mount Union over Oshkosh, at least not by much. Now, obviously, those of us who vote in the poll, we have to put them in some order. But I think they're all fairly uh, pretty pretty even at this point. But by the end of the year, the Purple Raiders and Titans, they'll have a common opponent, John Carroll, to help us compare a little bit for whatever that's worth. When we get these kind of you favor those guys comments and we get it from both sides, uh, and we do, uh, that's the most reassuring way 
to know we're doing our jobs. Yeah, that uh, tweet comes from Texas. I will say, you know, that I am voting for Mount Union number one. I'm one of the four. Uh, just a, a quick reminder, and I've said this on the podcast before, about why I have Mount Union in the top spot on my ballot at the moment. Just remember how last season ended, right? Uh, Mount Union goes down to Mary Harden Baylor with, you know, again, ostensibly their worst team in 25 years, something like that, 20 plus years. Um, and they go toe to toe with Mary Harden Baylor. Uh, you know, losing a, a two-point game on the road in the national semifinals, basically doing something that I think a lot of people didn't think Mount Union was going to be capable of doing when they saw that bracket was to win three consecutive games to get to the national semifinals and then uh, play a tight game against Mary Harden Baylor on the road in Texas in December. Unprecedented for Mount Union. The reason why I have Mount Union number one right now is because basically Mount Union returned so much off of that team, and Mary Harden Baylor lost you know a bit in some key spots. We've talked about uh, you know the the defensive guys they lost. Obviously, they lost Blake Jackson, a quarterback. Um, you know maybe maybe quarterback is still an open question for Mary Harden Baylor. Kind of hard to tell over the last couple of weeks, um, and there may still be changes to come. I will say this, Mary Harden Baylor's defense is definitely playing super impressively that this is a uh, type of program that uh, doesn't rebuild. It what's that word again, Keith? Yeah, a reload. Reloads. Reloads on defense. Reloads on defense uh in a uh, in a pretty significant way and they've done it once again this season. So I was pretty tempted uh over the course of the past couple of weeks and I keep reconsidering that vote, but right now I'm often also a guy who likes to cast the contrary vote and likes to try to balance out the the top 25 or at least the number 1 vote whenever possible. I tell voters this uh and I told them this uh for many years on the d3hoops.com ballots as well. There's only one vote that you cast that's public that everybody gets to see. Everybody knows how many number one teams there are and I, uh, how many number one votes go to each particular team. And I would like it to see, like he said, I think it should be a little more balanced as well. I don't think 21 to 4 is an accurate representation of where these two teams are at the moment. But I only have one ballot. There's 24 other people who have ballots and they're all uh, certainly entitled to their opinions. And that's how we end up where we end up. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple of quick ways you, you do that. One, some people just put the champion in the champion spot until they lose. For me, it was more based on them having played Linfield and Harden-Simmons, two teams that are, are right now in the top 10. Mount Union hasn't played anybody quite of that caliber. But you certainly have a compelling argument when you bring up that game from last season because Mount Union went down to Texas with Dom Davis as their quarterback. The quarterbacks who took snaps on Saturday— D'Angelo Fulford, Luke Poorman started the second half for Mount Union, and a third player, Robert Powell, came in through a couple of passes. Dom Davis isn't even uh, one of the three quarterbacks who who played for them this Saturday. So you could certainly argue that uh, that they've upgraded a quarterback. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Keith, Utica kicker Mackay Medici made the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh field goals of his collegiate career. They just weren't enough as Utica fell to St. John Fisher in the uh, quintuple overtime game. Also, I just wanted to say quintuple overtime. His long was the 39-yarder in the first half of that last overtime, but St. John Fisher answered with an actual touchdown to win that game 39-36. First win for St. John Fisher on the season, by the way. Uh, a needed win, I believe, as someone pointed out to you on Twitter. Also, so much talk of field goals on this podcast this may be a record for for field goal chatter our runner-up twitter question was about uh wisconsin whitewater's playoff chances of course they've been one of the dominant programs 
in uh, in D3 over the past decade or so. Had some high-profile losses early in the season. Moved to 3-3 three and three this weekend. Do they have a shot at the playoffs? You know, the snap reaction is to say, nope, no three-loss team has a shot. But they may have a, a, a chance a smidge higher than Zerio. Than Zerio. Wow. You're the one making up words now. I, I, uh, smidge higher than zero. Uh, could the committee take a seven and three team with a two and three record against regionally ranked opponents and a strong SOS over a nine and one team with a, a zero and one record uh, against regionally ranked opponents in a weak SOS? I still doubt it, but the amount of games against regionally ranked opponents, if the results break correctly, would be nearly unprecedented for Whitewater. You figure uh, Illinois Wesson could win the CCIW. Concordia Moorhead could still win the MIAC, although right now they're they're trailing uh, St. Thomas. The other team they lost to, uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh, in control in the WIAC. Then you have Stout right now three and two, Lacrosse five and one. Platteville is still on White Whitewater schedule. Maybe one to two of those teams will end up in the West Region rankings, and Whitewater will have had to beat uh, all of them to get to seven and three. So. In this scenario, if they get to seven and three, um, they could have one win over regionally ranked opponents, maybe two. Although that would be a lot of WIAC teams in the West Region rankings. I, I just I've never seen that many results against regionally ranked opponents, so it gave me a thought that maybe there's a small, small chance of it happening. I guess there's a non-zero chance, but uh, there's a very small. There are very small numbers that are also non-zero. Let's pull C. Mageddon this for a second. We talked last week about the possibility that Springfield could go 10-0 and 0 and end up as a Pool C candidate. I think that's very possible. Secondly, uh, how about two teams going 10-0 and 0 in the President's Athletic Conference? Still very possible. There could be two 10-0 teams in Pool C, let alone before we get to anybody who's 9-1, and 1, let alone before we get to anybody who's 8-2, and 2, let alone 7-3. and 3. There are only five at-large uh, bids. If you think about still how far Whitewater is going to be down the pecking order in the West region, I find it very difficult to think that they'll even get to the table. Illinois Wesleyan could win the CCIW, but they need some tiebreaker help or they need uh, Carthage to beat North Central or uh, uh, let's see, Milliken can't beat North Central because they've already lost to them. Uh, they need help for that to happen. They could end up on the board at the same time as Illinois Wesleyan and bam, Illinois Wesleyan is going to go in because of the head-to-head. -head. Uh, they could be behind Concordia Moorhead. Concordia Moorhead is, uh, um, they, unless St. John's, unless St. Thomas stumbles, uh, and Concordia runs the table, Concordia is not going to win the automatic bid, and they're going to be ahead of Whitewater in the pecking order in the West, uh, and possibly St. John's would be too. I just don't even, the number of things that would have to happen in order for Whitewater to get to the table would probably be pretty large. Whitewater, however, I think very well could be in the regional rankings, and that could affect playoff chances for Illinois Wesleyan as a at, uh, potential at-large, and possibly Concordia Moorhead as well. Those are all super valid points that you make. Uh, and you're right. I think Illinois Wesleyan, Concordia Moorhead, uh, to a lesser degree, Oshkosh, they may not have to worry about it. But those teams, Platteville, um, you, you may, Platteville has to beat them to be in it. And then you may knock them out of the regional rankings. But you want to see those teams uh, ranked now that you've beaten them. You want, you want to see them do well. Um, because that helps your SOS, and that also helps your results against regionally ranked opponents. Two of the five main playoff criteria. 
pulling ourselves out of the West region for a second. Maine Maritime caught as many passes of Coast Guards as it did passes of its own, and that was a huge help in getting the Mariners past the Bears 34-16. This was also a game that was a candidate for my double take, Keith, because Coast Guard came into the game at 500, Maine Maritime was winless, and basically a, a unanimous pick for last in the new Mac. But uh, Corey Krieger does everything for Maine Maritime, playing quarterback, kicking off, place-kicking, punting, and he had uh, 329 yards of total offense, 212 of them rushing and yeah the uh because main maritime still rang the uh triple option they were three for seven passing so three passes and then three interceptions of coast guard as well impressive that, that seemed like that was a uh, maybe a game ball runner up for you that was definitely something i was uh, interested in in talking about there as well you know me i just uh, i love to pick out those spots where uh uh, a triple option team catches more of the opponent's passes than it does of its own. Uh, that's been a, that's been a, ru- a running theme of mine. Um, let's go to another, every thought of mine is a thought of yours, thought of yours, a friend of mine trying unbeaten. But when you ask why all unbeaten teams aren't treated equally and ranked, Oh, besides the size of D three, which we dealt with in the podcast last week, none of Trine's six vanquished opponents have more than two wins. By comparison, all but one of Whitewater's opponents has more than two wins, and four of them have at least five wins. And coincidentally, Trine plays five-win hope next. So let's hope, or if you're a Trine fan, you hope they do well. And uh, and then you may see some love on the ballot, but you really, even when you, you win all your games, because there are so many other 6-0, and 5-1, and 5-0 teams across the country, you really have to have some impressive wins at this point in the season, at least one. To, uh, to sneak into the, to the top 25. If you were going to continue with the uh, the hope play on words, I was going to have defiance because I was pretty sure you were trying too hard. Morgan Salzweedle isn't the first woman to play Division Three football, and she surely won't be the last, but she's the latest. She came on to kick an extra point late in the game for Cal Lutheran in a 42-20 win versus Claremont Mudscripts on Saturday. I'd just like to point out that St. Scholastica has now outscored its opponents 240 to 202, despite giving those opponents a 98-point head start. The Saints are 6-1 and and on a crash course with McMurray, which it will face November 4th for the UMAC crown, more than likely. Yes, I'm fascinated by this, and I mention it every other podcast. Now Keith is all of a sudden the uh, UMAC correspondent for the uh, D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, although I'm still planning to try to get to that game up in Duluth. Duluth in November. If you're watching the uh, Plays of the Week reel, you see an interception return by Trinity, Connecticut that gives the Bantams a 13-7 lead in the second quarter at Tufts, which you don't see. And why don't we see this, by the way, Tufts? On the next play, Tufts blocks the Trinity point after attempt and returns it 80-some yards the other way for a defensive two-point conversion. If you were dropped into the middle of a college football game for the first time at that moment, you'd be hooked. And by the way, the student broadcaster for Tufts really sounded like he was hooked and had been dropped into college football for the first time at that moment. Dang. Um, In our quest to mention every OAC game on this podcast, just like to point out that Ohio Northern beat John Carroll in two overtimes, pretty much clinching that the Blue Streaks, a national semifinalist last season, will miss this year's playoffs. Marietta beat Wilmington. Uh, In the same state, but figuratively miles from the OAC, we find Hiram. Terriers have won two games this season, both by scoring in the 60s. They beat uh, Earlham 63-41 the opener and added that win that uh, was mentioned earlier versus Kenyon on Saturday by the score of 62-56. Keith, uh, Hiram was in the OAC when we started this thing. Uh, I mean the website, not the podcast. But can you imagine what would happen to the Terriers in the OAC now? Uh, well, I mean, no, I can't. Don't. All right. 
<laughs> Last thing, uh, corrections. Last week I said that Harden Simmons held at number five on my ballot. Looked at my ballot this week. They were number six. Uh, so they were and are six for me. They were fifth uh, for everyone else in the poll nationally. Also, I believe I said plural interception returns for Mountain Union last week. Pat, you sort of caught it in real time, but in case it wasn't clear, it was way back in week two against Marietta when the Purple Raiders had multiple interception return touchdowns, although they have five now on the season, including one last week. Yeah, uh, it could happen again. Uh, let's uh, let's not put that in the past tense, I guess. Uh, coming up this week, uh, the big Linfield-George Fox showdown, which we didn't think necessarily was going to be a big Linfield-George Fox showdown. This has become, uh, I don't know about a rivalry necessarily. I'm sure it's a rivalry for George Fox, maybe not for Linfield, but uh, of course now a game between two ranked teams. Well, yeah, and and not only has George Fox been surprising, pretty much one of the, the biggest surprises in the country this season, uh, the coach came out of the Linfield program, so uh, they're also not too far down the road from each other in uh, in Western Oregon, so I, it's hard to get West Coast geography for me because I'm so East Coast. Um, um, I, so I think those teams have a lot of ties. They probably overlap in recruiting a little bit. And certainly Linfield's got the 50-some-odd year uh, win streak going on. Six, or, or 61, 61, I think. See, and I would have— Maybe, maybe soon, uh, to be, gonna, soon to be 62? I don't know. Now I'm, Now we're going to get, get letters about that. Oh, I'm going to get killed for that for sure. <laughs> Thanks for we making that a we thing instead of just me. Um, but, you know— Again, it's almost it's like a foregone conclusion. I don't even notice anymore when they usually when they win their fifth game of the season. And I guess this would this would clinch it. Yeah. All right. They're four and one right now. Uh, if they win this weekend, it would also be the game that extends that streak of winning seasons the longest in the country. Uh, other good games next week. Oshkosh five and zero at Wisconsin Lacrosse five and one. Lacrosse coming off the loss to Whitewater. They were competitive in that game. And uh, this we mentioned, I guess, two podcasts ago, uh, where we're, you were voting for lacrosse, but a lot of the other voters are holding off, waiting to see how they do in uh, in these games against really good teams. This is the chance for the Eagles to uh, to get some notice. Do a thing. It is, by the way, uh, sixty one headed for sixty two for Linfield. Carthage five and one. They're at Illinois Wesleyan six and one. That's a uh, unexpectedly big game in the CCIW. Uh, it's like the I guess not the biggest game of the week if you count uh, North Central and Wheaton uh, <laughs> as next week, but um, it's a, certainly a pretty huge one in the CCIW. Illinois Wesleyan obviously needs to keep winning. Carthage can't count them out yet. They have lost to Wheaton earlier in the season. That's the only blemish on uh, on their record so far. Hey, only game me uh, featuring unbeaten's next week, or at least the only uh, the only game on our list. Uh, Wittenberg six and zero at DePaul, big game in the control for for the control of the North Coast now that Wabash is no longer unbeaten. And uh, here's another one that uh, team that's been flying below the radar but may creep on to some top twenty five ballots uh, if they win next week. Westminster, Pennsylvania, the Titans have won five straight since a six point season opening loss to Wittenberg. They're at Washington Jefferson this week, which is six and zero. Those are really the five best games. We'll run down a bunch more good games for you that are uh, coming up next week, but without uh, without all the cool commentary. Harden Simmons is at Texas Lutheran. Harden Simmons five and one. Texas Lutheran four and two. Four and two RPI at five and one Alfred. It's five and two Hobart at six and one Union Luther. A surprising four and two. They host unbeaten Warburg at six and zero. Oh. Rose Holman at uh, six and one hosts 
Franklin at four and two. Hope, aforementioned, travels to Trine. Hope's five and one. Trine is unbeaten at six and zero. Ursinus goes to Susquehanna. Welcome back, Centennial Conference. Ursinus five and one. Susquehanna four and two. And uh, UW Stout three and two. They host UW Stevens Point four and two. And because I have a bit of a cold this week, I have voice over voice today. Yeah, I, I said that wasn't going to be cool. That was way cooler than I thought it was going to be. This was Around the Nation podcast number 180 for the week of October 16th, 2017. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag, nine years strong. I'm at D3Football on Twitter. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook as well. We have all sorts of new content on D3Football.com each week during the season. So look for the D3Football.com Play of the Week on Monday afternoons, Around the Region columns on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Adam Turr's Around the Nation columns on Thursdays, our weekly Quick Hits predictions on Friday, and wall-to-wall game coverage on Saturdays. Then snap judgments from Adam Turr on Sunday, and a brand new D3Football.com Top 25. And if Occidental cancels another game, or if Albright kicks some more players off the team, or any of a mother load of other things that could happen off the field, yeah, we'll probably cover those things too. You really did that uh, that voice the whole way through. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, I, I only get it about two or three days uh, in any given year, so I have to make the most of it. Uh, that was that might even top your uh, top your sad trombone moment as Pat's podcast moment of the year. We'll see. We'll have to vote at the end of the year. Nice work, Becky.